Welcome to the Exceptional Sales Letter Podcast with Darren Mitchell. If you're a sales letter looking to take your leadership to a whole new level, then this is the podcast for you. We'll be exploring tips, techniques, and strategies to help you take your leadership to the exceptional level and allow you to enjoy more money, more meaning, and better sales results. Welcome back to the Exceptional Sales Letter Podcast on uh, what is a beautiful Melbourne evening here in January, and I have the absolute pleasure of speaking with Mr. Mike Maynard all the way from, uh, let me get this right, is it Chichester? Is that how I pronounce it? Uh, Chichester. Chichester. Chichester in the UK. Yeah. <laughs> in the UK. Well, it's it's actually, as we were talking before, it's great to be able to talk to somebody on the same day because most of, most of the interviews in the last week have been... Uh, uh, talking to great people actually from the from the US and uh, always talking in the past, so we've been having some little <laughs> little dialogues around that. But absolutely uh, fantastic to have you on the podcast, Mike. How are you going on this fine Thursday in the UK? Given that it's in the middle of winter for you, um, well, we've actually got some sun today, which is the first wow. day I think for about four weeks that we've had any sun. So um, it's definitely good. Halfway through the day, um, yeah, so things going well, and it's great to be on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me on, Darren. Uh, absolute pleasure. And we uh, there was a slight hiccup because we were supposed to record this yesterday. And I, I will thank you um, officially on the podcast for your uh, graciousness to be able to reschedule. Um, so I do I do appreciate that. Now, for the listeners, you're the managing director and owner of Napier Group, um, PR and marketing agency for B2B tech companies. And uh, this this podcast goes out to lots and lots of different uh, uh, sales leaders and salespeople. And I love to explore a number of topics um, around marketing and also campaigns and so forth, because particularly this time of year, 2024, the start of the year, there's a lot of organizations trying to get a fast start to the year. And they're looking at their marketing budgets, looking at what they're doing in the marketplace and how do we generate leads and, and more visibility in the marketplace. So there's a number of different areas I'd love to uh, delve into. Before we jump into that, though, I'd love if you're able to just to give us a little bit of a background on the world, according to Mike Maynard, in terms of what uh, what got you into this particular industry and what led you to starting and running a very successful PR and marketing agency? Oh, great question. So started my career actually as an electronics design engineer. Um, realized I wasn't actually a brilliant design engineer, um, but I was actually really good at talking about technology. Um, so I moved into technical sales um, and I worked uh, in channel sales first and then for a semiconductor manufacturer. So uh, doing technical sales um, around Europe, ended up running a, uh, a, a what they call an apps team, which is technical sales team um, across Europe for a semiconductor company. Then, you know, wanted something different. You know, it was hard to really move on in an American company if you're based in Europe. Um, so uh, I decided to move into marketing mm -hmm. um, and uh, ran marketing in Europe for, for uh, five years. Um, and then rashly, you know, my company sent me out uh, to uh, do a management training course, a residential one week training course. The last evening, you know, the bottles of wine get open, you have a few drinks. Um, someone said to me, oh, Mike, you should run your own business. Um, and and you know, looking back now, I think what they were, were they were a really nice person saying, Mike, I will never, ever want to be your boss. Um, <laughs> but, you know, at the time I thought, oh, that's clearly, you know, I, I should run my own business. And literally two to three months later, um, the agency I was using approached me, my, the contact I worked with at the agency and said, look, the two founders want to sell. Why didn't you buy the agency? You know about marketing. Um, at the time, I knew nothing about agencies. Yeah. Um, I thought, 
can't be that hard. Um, so bought a, a technology agency, a technology PR marketing agency, um, around about two to three weeks before the dot-com crash and found out that actually it really was bloody hard. Wow. Just before the dot-com crash. Yeah. I mean, literally, you know, so when we bought the agency, we knew we had to replace the phone system because the phones didn't work properly. Um, so we're getting a new phone system installed um, and it got delayed and there were issues and people couldn't phone us. And, and I remember at one point saying, look, honestly, the only phone calls we get are either someone phoning up to cut their budget or cancel all the work. So let's not stress about the phone's not working. Let's just leave it for another couple of days. Um, you know, it'll be fine. They, they can uh, email us or do something else. So um, it, it was definitely a, a challenging time those first couple of years. And, and definitely impacted, I think, how cautious we, we are as a business. And we run the business fairly cautiously still. It's a really interesting, um, uh, I guess, situation there. So you've, you're have you working for an organization and, and they've probably given you some feedback to say, well, on the one hand, it depends on how you look at it. You can say, well, you've got this entrepreneurial flair, Mike. You, you'd be really good at running a business. Or they might be saying, you know what? You're a really hard person to manage. <laughs> But from your yeah. point of view, um, was there was there a catalyst that um, tipped you over the edge and said, why not? And especially in those early years, particularly as you just described, just prior to the dot-com um, crash, what were some of the key lessons that you, that you learned from that uh, phase that you've taken forward now? You mentioned that you're quite conservative as an organization in terms of how you approach things. But were there other key lessons that you've taken from that time that's held you in good stead? And particularly not just how you run your business, but the clients that you deal with right now? Yeah, I mean, lots of great questions there. So, I mean, what tipped me over the edge, I guess, was the fact that I got approached by the agency. It was it was uh, something that was easy. Um, it also meant I didn't have to start something new. There was some momentum. There were already clients. Um, you know, the biggest client was the company I worked for. So that was, a, you know, a great thing. So, so I... I have to say, and maybe it makes me lazy, but it, it was easier to do that um, than it was to start something. So that was kind of a big catalyst. Um, what did I learn? Uh, well, in the first few months, um, pretty much however bad you think things are, they can get worse. I think that yeah. was one of the, the first uh, big learnings I got. Um, you know, we were saying, oh, this is it. We've turned the corner. You turn the corner, you run straight into another wall. Um, and uh, we, we had a lot of challenges and setbacks. Um, but I think also, you know, it's interesting because you can keep going. Um, and so, you know, you've got to focus on certain things. Um, and when you're running a business, you know, one of the important things is cash. Mm. Um, if you run out of cash, doesn't matter if you're profitable or not, um, you're in real trouble. So managing cash is super, super important. And that's something I, I definitely learned. Um, and it's probably something that we've been overly cautious with going forward. So perhaps we don't invest as much in terms of growth of the business um, as we could do, but we're equally very stable when uh, times are tough. Mm. Great. It's fantastic. And so as you look at uh, the market today and what what Napier does, where do you where do you typically focus? If you look at, because I love to get into things like building personas and stuff like that, because um, a lot of organizations doing this, but it's fair to say that a lot of organizations are not doing it well. Um, where's your key, key focus here? I know it's in the B2B tech space, but in terms of your ideal customer size, what's what's your ideal customer? Yeah, great question. So, I mean, as you say, it's B2B tech. So fundamentally, we're selling things to technical decision makers. Um, and so generally speaking, you know, the clients we work with, their primary customer is somebody technical. So selling a technical product to somebody who's technical. Um, 
in terms of of you know the customer size, um, we have you know worked with clients as small as three people. We've worked with clients um, as big as you know three hundred and fifty thousand uh, people. So um, you know our main business, I would say, is in the sort of mid to enterprise size. Mm-hmm. Um, so we do a lot of work with clients from. I don't know. I mean, if I do US dollars, it's probably easier. You know, anything from about 200,000, 100, sorry, 200 million upwards. So maybe 100, 200 million upwards tends to be um, our sweet spot. But we still have smaller clients. We still like them. We still work with um, startups as well. Um, yeah. We've got some great startup clients. Um, obviously, we want those guys to be, you know, selling hundreds of millions in the future. Um, so we're working with them to grow with them. I, I mean, the reality is, is, you know, when we started um, with our current biggest client, um, they were about $100 million uh, worldwide. Um, and these guys are now $9 billion um, worldwide. So they've grown massively as we've grown with them over a period of about 30 years. Wow. Um, and I think the agency is... It's super focused on the audience that we reach. Um, And so to a large extent, the size of the client is not so important. Um, The ambition of the client matters. I mean, clients that are not ambitious probably aren't great fits for us. Wow, that's that's massive growth. Yeah, they've been incredible. (laughs) Unbelievable. And... And excuse my ignorance here, because I'm 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 trying to look at it from a from a pragmatic point of view, from a from a PR perspective. You know, we we heard, and particularly I, I spent a lot of time in corporate, and we we had the PR people internally, and and we we heard the term public relations and stuff like that. For an organisation that you work with, and you talk about PR at at its core, how would you how would you describe what that is? And is it is it a is it a marketing campaign with some awareness thrown into it? Um, is it um, trying to rectify some bad press that's in the marketplace? What What is it, or is it a bit of everything? It's a great question. I, I mean, we do PR and marketing. So the PR side for us is almost always getting into the the media. So, you know, whether that's trade press, whether that's um, mainstream media, whatever it is, um, to get people talking about the, the client or the client's products in a way that helps people sell. Yeah. Um, and I always think it, it it's super important. And there, there's some discussion about PR and reputation. Um, and it, it's definitely true that um, PR does something a bit different from marketing. PR builds reputation, which is very much a long-term thing. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, generally speaking, you want that reputation to be something that customers view as positive. So something that helps your sales team uh, be more successful. Um, I, you know, sometimes there's a little bit of reputation around stock price um, and getting investors excited, which customers don't care about. But I think the primary thing is, you know, what we're trying to do um, is help clients grow and help clients grow by ultimately making their sales, um, you know, process easier. And from that perspective, um, if you separate, I know you're a PR and a marketing agency, uh, do you separate that? So are there clients that simply want you to build that awareness and have their the presence in the media sphere that will then lead to marketing or inflow? Or do you then also get involved in some sort of marketing campaigns as well? Uh, so we kind of separate the two um, internally, but the reality is a lot of clients use both. So there's a, there's a yeah. big mix. And I think, you know, 
it, it becomes difficult. So we, we have a team that specialize in, in reaching out to the media and that's kind of our PR team. Um, and we have a team that specialize in marketing and, and they'll, you know, have experts, for example, in Google ads, they'll have experts in LinkedIn advertising, they'll do organic and paid social, you know, all the rest of it. Um, so we've got areas of expertise. Um, but the reality is you get a lot that's kind of in a gray area. Um, so if you want to write something that, you know, for our clients explains why, you know, this particular gizmo is great in this situation, um, and it's a technical piece, yeah. um, you know, ultimately what's that's for is that, to place in the, the media, um, and get people reading in, in, you know, an online publication is that to put on your website, um, and get people reading the website and feeling better about you on the website. So that kind of, you know, owned media stuff. Um, or are you going to put that, you know, behind a, a registration wall and use it as a lead gen thing? Um, mm -hmm. And the answer is quite often people do all three. Yeah. Um, so, you know, then well, where does PR start and marketing stop? It's really hard to say. Um, so we have people with expertise and certain skills. Um, but generally, it's all about getting a team together and, you know, delivering what's going to make the difference and move the needle for the client. And then it's obviously based on that. It's customized based on the need of the client and the industry they're in and what they're trying to sell, or what they're trying to build awareness around. Yeah, and most marketing is 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 highly customized, particularly PR. Yeah, um, you know, it's very hard to sell a you know off the shelf. This is a package. This is what you know company X did, so it will work for company Y because the two companies are a completely different situations. So yeah. um, we do do a lot of sitting down with clients and helping them build a strategy. And, um, you know, I, I think that there's two things you've got to do when you, you're you're running campaigns. You know, one is you've got to work hard. You've got to run fast. Mm. And the second and the most important thing, is you've got to run fast in the right direction. Um, and I think all too often we see um, people, particularly in marketing, going, oh, we're going to do this. They run off in that direction. It's actually not what they need. What they need is something else. So making sure you know where you're going first before you, you know, start sprinting, it's really important. And with that, it, it brings to mind the importance of things like customer personas and working with your customers to, and how much how much of the work would you do then? And from your perspective, do you have a set definition of different personas that you then, I guess, educate clients on? Or do you actually work with them to identify specific personas based on the industry or based on the customer? That's a great question. And um, it's interesting because we've, you know, have thought at times and maybe we can have like off the shelf personas. Yeah. Um, it doesn't work. Yeah. Um, and I think this is this is a, an interesting situation. Um, you can have personas that are fairly bland. Um, and I think when you talk about personas, you've got to be careful because, you know, pe people create personas and, and and they'll say, you know, hey, Darren, you know, he's, he's you know, uh, 21, he's young, he's athletic, he's a sports person, you know, he, he goes out to really cool, trendy bars. Um, none of that is useful in marketing, typically, when you're in B2B. Um, yeah. so you create those generic personas and they're completely useless. And um, what you need to do is create a persona that really tells you why that person is likely to want to buy, um, you know, your client's products mm. um, and why they might buy from somebody else. Um, yeah. and so thinking about those things, thinking about the challenges they have in their job, you know, all the way through to, you know, we say, well, one of the most important things you need in a persona is how are you going to get this guy promoted? Yeah. Um, because if you're talking to someone in a customer and providing a product, if you can provide a product that, you know, boosts their standing within their organization or even gets them promoted, you know, you're on a winner there. Absolutely. Um, so I think it, it's really hard to do that 
and have a generic kind of persona that works for everybody. Because in reality, you know, our clients are providing different products. Um, they're solving different problems. And so you need different personas. Yeah. And how, based on your experience working in the, in the industry, um, how, how good are organizations and people within organizations at being able to identify those personas? Because my, my sense is that they're very good at understanding what their product is but they're not necessarily as advanced in understanding who their true customer avatar is, for example. Would that be a fair yeah, statement? I, I think that that's really true. I think that, um, you know, on average, companies could do a lot better job on personas. Yeah. Um, and, and particularly companies could do a lot better job um, actually talking about personas internally. I mean, so we see three groups, really. We see, you know, organizations that really don't do a good job they don't pay attention to personas um and so they're kind of shooting in the dark and okay they might get lucky they might you know run a campaign that that works really well um but let's be honest some of that's luck um or intuition you might want to call it um we have you know clients that do a really great job um on personas um, and they'll be talking about those personas across the organization i think one of the important things to say is is you know a persona is not just for marketing. A persona is for sales as well. Yeah. Um, and you need to tie the two together. Um, and the problem is, is you get this third group that kind of sit in the middle where maybe the marketing team has created some personas um, and then they don't really talk about them. Maybe you don't look at them. Um, there's some vague reference to them occasionally, but it never really flows into sales. Um, and so you've kind of got this you know, half-hearted effort at personas. Um, and so sales will ask for leads and marketing will go, well, how can we generate leads? Oh, this persona, we definitely get leads from them. And sales are like, we don't care about those people. You know, <laughs> who want what persona be? Um, and so I think, you know, using those personas and using them across the organization is super important. Um, and, and generally people don't do a good job of that. Are you saying, Mike, that we need to have marketing and sales actually talking to each other? <laughs> Well, I, I, I don't know about talking, but, you know, may, maybe just get them in the same room initially and, you know, try and encourage <laughs> them not to fight. Because <laughs> <laughs> the thing I, uh, and my, my experience on this in personas, and I was in an organization where we, we did a lot of this work, um, the challenge was marketing had their own personas, the sales team had their own personas, but it was always from the company's perspective looking out. It wasn't from the customer personas looking in because different customer personas They've got different personality traits, different ways of thinking, different ways of processing information, and they've got dis different decision-making criteria. So we need to understand what the buying behavior is of those personas and then build campaigns around that because if that matches, then it should make it easier for the sales team to do the thing that they're paid to do. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, for some of our clients, um, they do a really good job. And, and one of the the you know groups of clients that work really well uh you know some of these sort of um international companies that are doing a, a low hundreds of millions of dollars because typically with, with us being technology a lot of those clients are american yeah um so headquarters in america europe is seen as a, a satellite organization so you have a guy you put in who runs sales in europe um, and then you build that organization up and you put some marketing in, in europe eventually that marketing guy whether it's official or unofficial like the boss he cares about is the guy running sales in Europe yeah. um, because that's the person that has all the power in Europe. Um, and I think that can actually be quite a good way to organize things because marketing then, particularly in Europe, is very focused on what they can do to make sales happy. Mm. Um, and, and that's really important. 
It is. It is. And I, I my my own experience on all this and working with lots of different organizations is um a lot of companies are too self-focused and not enough customer focused and, and problem focused. So a lot of the marketing materials, a lot of the proposals, a lot of the pictures, a lot of the presentations are all geared around how good we are and we have the best product, the best widget, the best solution, and not enough on, okay, and this is this is probably understanding your buyer personas better. What's the problem you're trying to solve? Because if you can't articulate that, the customer's going to be sitting there thinking, so? Yeah, so I, I mean, it's a, it's a problem we see a lot. And a lot of it is because technology companies tend to be driven by engineers and the engineers are focused on the product and the technology and not necessarily on the customer. Yeah. Um, and and we we have said to, to clients occasionally, it's like you do realize that, you know, your whole strategy is, well, if the customer can't put the time and effort in to understand our product and work out why it's really good for them, they don't deserve to benefit from it. <laughs> um, and you think, you know, that's a bit ridiculous, but actually, you know, it, it's almost like that. Companies um, don't think from the customer point of view, they think from the product point of view. Um, yeah. And they think from the point of view of people who've worked 20 years developing this product, you know, put their yeah. whole lives into it. Um, and customers are different. Customers don't uh, think about the product as much as the people developing. It's not the only thing they care about. Uh, um, and they often don't have the time to do the research. You've got to help them. Yeah. Absolutely. So from, from a PR perspective, that's that's one thing, understanding those personas. From a marketing perspective, then once once you get marry those together, what are some key things that organizations, because there'll be people listening to this and thinking, well, we've got a marketing budget, we've got to try and improve our reach. We might have to do some PR work to try and get some media exposure or maybe open up some channels, perhaps we haven't, but we wanna we wanna do more marketing. Um, what are some things that that we need to be looking at in terms of like return on investment. So I know that there's five key things that you typically talk about in relation to that, to increase that. What what are some of those key key areas that we should be focusing on around um, returning on investment for marketing? So return on investment is, I, I mean, it's, it's a really interesting thing because there's not a consistent way to understand what the return is. For, for different clients. Um, and I think, you know, should people look at optimizing return on investment? Well, there's definitely ways to do that. Yeah. Um, and there's definitely things to look at. But actually, what people should look at is what they're trying to achieve, that return thing. Um, and I think all too often, companies focus on the investment rather than return. Mm. Um, and actually, what you should be doing is swapping that around and saying, well, what are we trying to achieve? how much is it going to cost to do that and is that then worthwhile rather than we've we've got you know ten thousand dollars you know we're going to put that into marketing how much is it going to give us i mean that's completely the wrong way to do it um, although unfortunately it's the way a lot of people do actually approach this um so i think what you need to do is is understand what that return is um and typically there are steps and people talk about customer journeys obviously um but there are steps to people becoming a customer um, and so you've got to understand, you know, where you've got problems in terms of that journey or that that sales funnel, um, mm. how you're going to fix them, uh, what you're going to do to fix it, and then how much it's going to cost and what benefit is that going to give you in terms of increased sales. Um, and I think that's really the place to start rather than start looking at, you know, optimizing an equation with artificial numbers is, you know, let's start off with what the return is, what we're trying to achieve, and then build campaigns that can do that with um you know investment that that makes it profitable so 
you know, very simply, if you're going to generate $100,000 of sales, um, you make 50% uh, margin. Um, there's no point spending $75,000 on that because you're losing money. Mm. Um, if you can generate $100,000, make $50,000 profit, and it only costs you 5000 bucks to do, that's clearly a good thing. So I think it's about working backwards um, from the return rather than working um, from the investment. Um, and I, and that, that's, it sounds obvious. I mean, it sounds like this is, is you know, talking about blindingly obvious. Almost nobody does it. So what do you think? Oh, sorry, I didn't catch that, Darren. So why why do you think that is? Why why is it that the vast majority of organisations and, and probably people have done marketing degrees and maybe some cases MBAs think, you know, we'll just throw money at it and we'll expect a return from it versus changing it and starting with the end in mind? Oh, it's easy. I, I mean, that's a simple answer. Um, and it's particularly easy for finance because actually what they do is they don't start with $10,000 as the investment. They start with the same as last year or 5% on last year. Um, so it's all done based upon what we did previously <laughs> is basically what we're going to do today. Um, you know, and, and companies have been doing this for years. I mean, companies have been doing this for 25 years, 30 years. So they've been incrementing up their marketing budget every year in an environment where back in the, the 90s, 30 years ago, yeah, there was basically no internet. You know, everybody read paper magazines. Um, social media didn't exist. Um, so how are you going to build your, your, you know, your budget for marketing? Well, the answer is you just add, you know, 3% a year every year for 30 years. That's how you do it. Uh, it it's clearly crazy. Um, it, it's clearly crazy. Uh, but but that is why people do it. It's it's a financial driven. Um, and also, and, and, you know, having worked in sales and worked in marketing, you know, it is true that sales gets a lot more attention from the CEO and the CFO than marketing does. And I think that's that's an issue. Um, and I think that, you know, some some of the execs at companies, they actually need to wake up and realize that sales and marketing aren't two completely different things. You know, sales no. and marketing should be working together to drive revenue. Absolutely, because there are things called marketing generated leads, but then we have to think about what are the sales qualified leads because Marketing might do all the work, but if they're not working with sales to try and identify what is the key customer going after, what is the key problem we're trying to solve, there might be wasted opportunities and wasted marketing dollars that are that are not highlighting or identifying the key customer. Yeah, and, and that marketing qualified, sales qualified leads, that, that's a really interesting discussion. I mean, it's a the two are useful constructs. Um, but basically what you have is you have Marketing qualified leads are based upon a, a set of fairly easily measurable criteria. You know, work for a company of this size, have this job title, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then you have sales qualified leads, which are basically leads. Mm. I mean, they're people that might buy. Yeah. Um, and the people that are marketing qualified leads but aren't sales qualified leads, they're the people who aren't buying. I mean, they're not really leads. No. Um, they're just contacts. Yeah. Um, and they could be leads in the future when they're ready to buy, when they come into market. And, you know, I mean, LinkedIn's talked, talked a lot about people being in market and not in market. And only 5% of your, your audience is in market or whatever magic number they come up with. Yeah. Um, not necessarily true. Uh, definitely those things vary. Um, but, you know, the reality is if you look at your marketing qualified leads, you know, maybe one in 20 is really ready to buy. So, mm. um, 
in reality, you, you're looking at something that's 20 times higher in terms of of, of uh, the number than what it should be. You know, they're, they're not leads. Yeah. They're 20 times your leads. Yeah. So if you look at the the marketing campaigns we're trying to run today, you we, we talk about changing it around and thinking about how do we start with the end in mind and look at the return first? What are some other key things that we that we should be looking for? Or what are some th- key things that you do with your clients that you find as having some traction in the marketplace that people could um, either utilize themselves or at least get some ideas from? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of things. I think, you know, one of the things um, uh, marketing is not necessarily great at, um, and I think sales tends to be better, but again, isn't always brilliant, um, is understanding who's involved in the decision. So, um, I, you know, in the UK, we call it a decision-making unit. In America, they call it the buying committee. Um, but really <laughs> understanding that and trying to reach more than your, you know, nominal decision-maker. Yeah. Um, because again, you know, if we look at technology, technology is a great example. Um, you know, if you're trying to sell a technical product into a, a, a company, um, there's going to be lots of people involved in that decision. Um, and very simply, you know, uh, for example, there's, there's going to be purchasing, there's going to be an engineer. Um, and purchasing has got certain things that they're trying to control um, and a lot of it around vendor management and number mm-hmm. of vendors. Um, and engineers want cool stuff generally speaking, uh, that's going to help them in their their project. But what you don't want to do is go to the engineer who's going to be the keen person. I, I You know, I, I can tell you if you've got something new and technical, you talk to an engineer, generally speaking, they're really excited. They're like, hey, this is really interesting. Um, it can be a problem because they can be excited about stuff they're not going to use as well. So um, <laughs> you've got to be careful about that. Um, like a kid in a candy love... store wanting to grab everything. Yeah, exactly. I mean, en- Engineers love technology. So you talk to them, you feel great. You've had this great conversation. And whether that's an engagement on social media through marketing or whether that's a sales conversation, you think it's great. But in reality, what you're trying to do is you're trying to say, okay, now we've got you excited. There's this guy in purchasing. This guy in purchasing actually has a lot of control. And typically, mm. you know, particularly in large companies, they they can control vendors and where they come in and they can make it very, very difficult. And what you're saying is, okay, you're my best buddy. You're you're the guy that I'm trying to make really want to use this product. So the way to make you want to use this product is you've got to talk to purchasing and try and convince them that they should buy from us. Um, and that's crazy because, you know, your best ally is having to do all the hard work. So yeah. I think what you need to do is open it out. And, you know, in that really simple example, we've got an engineer and purchaser. You've got to try and reach purchasing. Reaching purchasing actually is very, very difficult for marketing, very easy for sales. So yeah. um, it's an interesting challenge for marketing to actually do things useful for uh, that reach purchasing people. Um, so I think, you know, that's really important is, is understand who's involved and who influences decision yeah. and make sure you reach more than just your key buyer. Yeah. I was going to say, does does PR play a role in that in terms of helping get access to perhaps the purchasing people that, that maybe a marketing person may not be able to? That's actually a, a really, really good point. So, um, you know, PR is great because um, PR has very broad reach. It reaches a lot of people. Um, it's bad because it's very broad. It's not really targeted um, yeah. because it's really driven through the publications you, you're reaching. Um, but one of the things PR could do, and this is, this is you know, something I've had experience of, you know, actually working in engineering, um, is the last thing you want to do is you, you as an engineer, you decide you want to use a product. Um, and you go to your boss and you go, I want to use this widget and it comes from Widget Master Inc. Um, and your boss goes, 
who the hell is Widget Master Inc? And your heart <laughs> sinks because you know you've got to do this. Well, actually, they're not going to go bust tomorrow. They're really good. We think the product's okay. You know, I, you need to have that ability. But when when somebody goes and says, you know, we want to use a product from this vendor, um, their boss goes, cool. I know them. They're good. Um, yeah. And so, you know, that's an important part of that buying process. And PR can be actually really effective at reaching all those bosses who maybe you don't know. Yeah. Um, maybe, you know, you, you're not sure what role they're going to be in. Um, that can be really effective. Um, at the other end, doing really targeted account-based marketing programs can also be very effective at reaching those bosses and those other people in the decision-making unit as well. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's that's another topic in, in, its, in its entirety. And uh, we could probably spend days talking about that. Um, what I did want to get to uh, just before we, as we when we wrap up, we'll talk about AI. But um, any other key things that around marketing that we we haven't covered that we 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 think we should sort of mention? Yeah, I think you know we mentioned that marketing and sales need to work together, and there's kind of this flow of, of customer journey, um, and we've got to make sure that we move people through that customer journey. I think what we need to do is we need to you know obviously make sure we don't have this divide, um, and it's this MQL SQL divide that is a, a really big problem, um, and it's a responsibility of both marketing and salespeople mm. um, to actually overcome that, um, and I think particularly salespeople. Um, have an opportunity. So sales has never historically really been big fans of marketing. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and and even if they are, they they certainly never say it. Um, the reality is, is mostly that salespeople actually appreciate that marketing helps them in their job and it's really important, but they don't really want to admit that. You know, uh, um, the classic thing, speaking as a marketer now, having been a salesperson, having done this, is, you know, you get, a, get an inbound call with someone going, I want to buy this now. Anyway, get off the phone you're immediately like i've just made this amazing sale it's all down to me you know and, no it's not it's an inbound call it's like nothing to do with you potentially potentially it is but potentially not <laughs> um but i think sales has got to understand that marketing should be there to help um and so sales should be really clear about what they need um and quite often you know that the way marketers and sales people fall out is that marketers provide a bunch of leads and sales people go they're all terrible yeah um so firstly, yeah. salespeople, you know, tw uh, one in 20 of your uh, your potential prospects will actually be in market ready to buy. So don't expect 100% of those marketing qualified leads to be ready to buy because they won't be. Yeah. Um, qualify them out, qualify them out quickly. Um, but also give useful feedback. Um, tell the uh, marketing team what's not relevant. Um, you know, and if it's based on a job title, if it's based on particular companies, you know, marketing should then be filtering those out and they shouldn't be marketing qualified leads then. Um, no, because ultimately, if they, they've got no chance of helping sales, they shouldn't be qualified leads at all ever. Um, yeah. So really push back on that marketing qualified lead definition, um, because that's going to help marketing teams build campaigns that actually generate the results. And then I think also understand that marketing is doing a lot more than just driving leads. Um, so not always the case. I mean, you look at, you know, things like SaaS companies, often marketing is very focused on lead generation. Um, mm. But the reality is the best SaaS companies, they do amazing PR as well. They do amazing awareness. You know, Salesforce still does some great PR, um, even though everybody's heard of Salesforce. Yeah. Um, so I think you've got to understand as a salesperson that marketing needs to look at the top of the funnel as well as the bottom. 
Um, and equally as a marketing person, you've got to understand that you need to be focused on generating those uh, high quality, useful leads at the bottom of the funnel, as well as working on the top on the PR, maybe the more fun stuff. Absolutely. And I was laughing just before, because as you were talking about that, I'm just having visions of when I was working at um, some big telecommunications companies here in Australia, a number of years ago, we always used to point the finger at marketing, but not giving us the leads. But in actual fact, when you look at it, we, were, we weren't the ones doing the qualification hard enough. And we were looking for the easy, well, let's just, just roll out and we'll have some conversations, drink a bit of coffee and, and close the deals. And when that wasn't happening, we're thinking, what the hell is wrong with marketing? It's not, it's not I, and I can guarantee that at the same time, marketing were pulling out, you know, one of the contacts in their big long list of marketing qualified leads. And they were going, sales aren't calling anybody. And look, hey, we've got this contact here that's obviously a great lead. They're yes. not calling anyone. It's all sales' fault. So that, it's just not productive, this, this sales marketing, um, no. you know, animosity um, and, and working together. I think one of the things that's really changed um, has been COVID. Um, mm. And actually, I, I, and I know you're in sales, I know your listeners are in sales, but but the reality is, is people talk to sales much less now than yeah. they did prior to COVID. Um, and that's a huge problem for businesses because salespeople could walk around a, a customer's site. They could be talking, they go, oh, what they got these guys saying? Oh, really? Okay, yeah, we can maybe help them with this. We can maybe do this, mm. you know, and they get lots and lots of intelligence um, with those face-to-face -face meetings. Now, the number of those meetings has dropped, particularly face-to-face -face on site. Yep. Yep. Um, and so it's actually more of a challenge to sell now. Um, it's much more difficult. You've got much uh, far fewer opportunities to identify um, where you can help. So sales is actually more reliant on marketing. And, and if you look at the research, I mean, Gartner did something um, where they look at, you know, where um, people spend their time during the buying process. Um, and Gartner's saying people are spending a lot more time on self-directed research, fundamentally reading marketing materials on the web, um, and less time talking to salespeople. They're still talking to salespeople when they're ready to buy. Yeah. But the problem is, if your marketing's poor, you can be ruled out of any chance of selling anything before That's the it. salesperson even gets involved. That's it. Um, so it, it's so important to work together and even more important now. So well said. And I was talking to um, a colleague of mine before Christmas around this particular topic, and that is that buyers today more than ever are so better educated. And in many cases, they've already made a decision as to which organization they're going to do business with or at least liaise with before they've even made contact with them. So you've got to have your stuff together. You've got to make sure that your organization is working in cohesion to make sure there's a consistent message out there to the marketplace, because if not, you're going to be left behind. You're going to be left behind, simple as that. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the sales role is going to change. I mean, one of our clients said to us, and I think it was slightly tongue-in-cheek, he said, you know, I really don't know whether in five years' time we're only going to have 10% of our sales force that we've got now. Um, and, and marketing is going to be much more important. Um, you know, if that happens, don't think it'll be that much, but you know, certainly I think sales forces will will decrease. More money will be spent on marketing. It just reflects what buyers are doing. Yeah. Um, I think the sales job's going to be harder because sales will be focused, you know, almost exclusively on the, right at the end of that buying process, just closing yeah. the sale. Yeah. Um, without being able to build relationships or, you know, um establish a, you know, a rapport with the, the customer beforehand. So the sales job's going to be really, really tough. They're yeah. going to need more help from marketing. Um, and marketing's got to understand that, um, you know, in some areas, 
marketing be a little bit pretentious about what they do. Mm. Um, ultimately, marketing has got to help grow the business. Yeah. Um, and I think particularly PR can be a little bit guilty of saying nothing we do in PR should be measured in sales. Because yeah. actually, stuff you do in PR should be measured in sales. There may be some things you're doing outside of directly driving sales um, to improve reputation that that really matters, or maybe things that, that are very hard to measure. Yeah. Um, but absolutely, you know, we've got to work together. And in doing that and and being intentional, who knows, in a hot in a in a situation five, ten, who knows, maybe even twelve months time, you may actually have some hybrid roles where you've got sales and marketing in the same role. So marketing may take on more of a sales role, et cetera. Who knows? I'm just crystal crystal balling here. Um, well, I'd but- kind of argue that that already happens, Darren, because I mean I think you know, people talk about sales enablement. Mm. I mean, sales enablement True. really is is doing, you know, providing those marketing materials for salespeople to use. So yeah. um, I think that that's already beginning to happen. I think trying to to create a new discipline of sales enablement probably isn't the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, but I think it, it reflects this, you know, merging of marketing and sales. And, and that's kind of the edge of where it merges. And in fact, a lot of a lot of clients we have, sales enablement is actually marketing. Marketing produce yeah. um, content for sales. So yeah. um, I, th- I think that that's happening. That's going to happen more. So based on all of this, it's it sounds like it's it's just so important. And people listening to this, um, PR is incredibly important. Making sure you've got the right messaging out there in the marketplace, and hopefully, people's ears are actually listening and eyes are seeing stuff you're putting out there. Marketing has to be consistent in terms of, you know, what are we putting out there to incite a level of curiosity? Then they have to work, you know, dovetailed into the sales teams as well to make sure that the the, the communication is consistent. But also feedback has to, as you mentioned before, feedback has to be provided in terms of what's working and what's not working. Because when you're investing dollars in trying to uh, generate, I guess, interest in the marketplace, you've got to have to measure that in some way. So working hand in hand is such a critical thing. Which brings me to the final point I wanted to talk to you about, and that is the old artificial intelligence. Now, I know you've got a very specific view on this, and we talked before we pressed record about some experiences on LinkedIn with AI. Um, one of the things you, you're sort of, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm going to say you were kind of quoted as as saying, whether it was you or somebody that did the stuff for you that in terms of your bio, um, AI is going to disappear in marketing. Can you explain? Can you explain that what what you mean by that? Because oh, people that, listen that to would, this and they're thinking, yeah. oh, AI isn't 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 that going to introduce improvements? You're now saying it's going to disappear." Yeah, so uh, that was definitely me. Um, yeah, so today, what's happening, particularly in marketing, is people are for doing AI, um, and quite often at the moment, that's going to ask Chat GPT things. Yeah. Um, and so you're working with a tool or you're working developing some content, um, you know, writing something, building a uh, you know, an online brochure, building a web page. Um, so you're doing work there, and then you jump off and you go and do the AI bit. You go and talk to Chat GPT and then you come back and then you, you know, get back to what you're doing. And you know, maybe there's a bit of um back and forth on that. But the AI is very obvious. Um, because you're you're typically having to move out of your current workflow, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Um into the AI and back again. Yeah. Um, what's going to happen, and I'm absolutely convinced of this, is that the separate AI, the chat GPTs of the world, that's not going to be something used in the future because 
you'll have AI including everything. Now, we we talked about LinkedIn, and uh, I don't know if any of the listeners have, have tried to use LinkedIn's new AI post-generation tool. Uh, it could produce, you know, some terrible content. It could produce content that's just <laughs> actually wrong, it, you know. Um, and, and I've had some fun trying it, and I think you have as well. Um, but I think that's where things are going. Um, but I, I, I don't feel necessarily that... Um, what LinkedIn's done at the moment, or what everybody's doing at the moment, is is necessarily where things are going to end up. Um, so, actually, what I see happening in the future, and yeah. LinkedIn posts a great example, um, is you start writing a post, um, and then you know within LinkedIn, within the whole edits um, screen where you're you're creating a post, um, a little suggestion will pop up, and and. Having lived through Clippy in Microsoft Word, um, I'm not sure if I should say this, but you know, I, I think what will happen um, is that you know, suggestible problem. It might be like, this is really formal. This is much more formal than you've written for your previous five posts. Is this really the style you want? <laughs> um, or you know, you said this, but in a previous post you said this. Is that right? Or perhaps you want to phrase this like this because this is going to be more interesting. Um, and I think that's what's going to happen. So. Nobody's going to think of it as AI. They're going to think of it as LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, and if you look at, um, for example, Google Ads, Google Ads is a great example. Um, so people generate Google Ads, uh, and they'll put multiple headlines in. And magically, Google shuffles around the headlines and goes, boom, this is the, this is the best um, uh, kind of ad you can get. Not quite as simple as that, but you know, that's kind of the idea. Um, and nobody goes, ooh. This is great. I'm going to put the headlines in so Google's AI can then process it. Um, and I'll wait for the AI decision. And then I'll look at the results. And then maybe I'll tweak something because I think I can do better. It's just like, I've created a Google ad. It's being optimized. Um, and, and I think that's where we need to get to with AI. At the moment, it's so separate. It's awkward. It's clunky. It's time yeah. consuming. Um, I think there's another question about whether generative AI is actually going to be good enough to write great content. Hmm. Um, the thing, you know, I always say to to people in the Napier team is, you know, having been an engineer, I know how AI works. And basically what AI does is it predicts the most likely next word. Um, now it can predict the most likely next word in pretty much any topic. So, um, you know, whether that's people who know about cricket or people who know about semiconductors, it will predict what they're likely to say. Yeah. So within your, so firstly, that's amazing, right? Because pretty much no human can be average at everything. Yeah. Um, but within your field, if you're above average, you'll be better than the AI. Yeah. Um, because AI is pr predicting the average, the most likely thing. So if sure. you're above average, you're better. If you're below average, that's when you've got to worry. Um, and normally I like saying this to an even number group of people because you look around and you go, that means that two of you are safe and two <laughs> of you better start training. <laughs> Um, so, you know, I, I think it's interesting. I mean, AI, AI, AI is, is definitely going to keep transforming things. I, the, the massive step change we've seen in performance is not going to continue. This is not a straight line change. Yeah. Um, so we're going to see bumps up. It's definitely going to keep improving. Um, but don't draw a line between, you know, never having used AI, um, a year ago to now using AI, you know, for 50% of your work. So therefore, in another year, you'll be replaced completely. That's not how this technology works. Yeah. Um, it's not what it's going to be like in the future. But, you know, equally, the idea of having someone who's at least average on any topic you want, um, that's a massive, massive benefit. So um, if I could have an assistant that was that knowledgeable, you know, that would clearly be amazing. So anyone who's not using AI is, is, is going to get 
called out and probably they're going to get replaced by the people who are. Um, and that's whether you're in marketing or sales, you know, sales, for example, you know, we've all sat there trying to write an email to a prospect um, and, and had that whole, oh, just don't know what to say. Um, today, AI is amazing. You press a button, you've got an email. Um, a pretty good chance it's not great. It's yeah. okay and you want to edit it. Yeah. Um, but you press a button, you edit it in a couple of minutes, you've done it. And that is so much more efficient than sitting there for 10 minutes wondering what to say. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So there's a lot of people out there that are, that are concerned about what AI actually means. But the key thing is it's, it's going to be an enabler. And one of the one of the key topics I talked about to a colleague a couple of days ago was it's going to help from an efficiency point of view and productivity point of view. It's not necessarily going to replace you. Um, so the knowledge you have, it can enhance that knowledge. So it should be able to level up people in terms of their level of capabilities and and reduce some time. So um, it, it should make us better at what we do, is is my view. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, if you look at it, AI today, it's machine learning. So you feed it loads and loads of stuff. Basically, you know, the internet, most of the books, um, Wikipedia, all gets fed into it. And then what it does, it takes things it's learned and, and, and reproduce it. And that, that's how AI works. Um, and I like to believe, and a lot of people like to believe, that our brains are slightly more sophisticated than that. So therefore, we are by definition better. So yeah. today, it's unlikely that you're going to build with with the AI technology being deployed today, particularly in terms of you know things they call large language models, chat GPT. Yeah. That's unlikely to completely replace a person. Yeah. Um, because it, it's a different thing. Um, yeah. It's much more limited. Would one person using AI replace three people who don't? That's entirely possible. And I think that's what people have got to worry about yeah. is the ability to do more with fewer people. Yeah. Um, and that could be a huge challenge and a massive impact of AI. Can't wait to watch this space because uh, I think we're gonna we're gonna see some significant changes in 2024. So, um, Mike, as we bring this to a close, and I greatly appreciate you taking some time to jump on the podcast. If you look into 2024, what are some of the key things that you're you're aware of this year or predicting for this year in relation to the work that you're doing for your organisations? Something to either be concerned about or something you're really excited about, or both. Uh, that, that's a great question. So. Um... There's a couple of things that are happening in marketing that I think are, are going to be really interesting. Um, so the first around marketing technology and privacy. Uh, and people talk about cookies, um, and, and everyone's worried about cookies and cookie notices and all the rest of it. The reality is, is, is what people who understand cookies care about is third-party cookies. Yeah. Um, so that's the Facebook cookie that doesn't just track you on Facebook. It tracks you almost everywhere on the web because everybody's, you know, built in this Facebook tracking. Yeah. Um, and there's benefits for websites to do it. So that's why they do it. But Facebook then gets all the data. Um, but that cookie is placed by Facebook on a website that's not owned by Facebook. So, for example, it, you know, it could be the Exceptional Sales Leader um, yeah. podcast website. Um, Google has finally, after years of dragging its feet, actually started um, blocking those cookies, those third-party cookies. Um, so that means what you need to do is build up your own store of data, yeah. um, your own um, information about customers, build your database. If people haven't been doing that over the last few years, it's it's going to be tough because they're not going to be able to go to Google and say, give me an audience of people who visited these websites and done this and done that. It's not going to happen. Yeah. Um, so... And that's the same with Facebook and the same with, you know, a number of other advertising services. So I think cookies, it's very boring. It's very geeky. We've 
ended up with a million do you accept cookie banners it's such a pain in the neck hopefully google finally doing this will allow um, the eu which has been the main cause of all these notices um, to actually say no we're going to allow people to um, set preferences in their browser rather than um, have to have a notice and hopefully some of these notices will go away it'd be great um, that has been talked about in the eu um, so not having to say yes i accept cookies every time you go on a website yeah. that might be a positive yeah um, and then i think you know if we look more generally people have talked about you know esg or csr so corporate responsibility and sustainability forever really um and certainly a lot in the last 10 years um and a lot of companies have created campaigns that frankly don't have very strong foundations they're talking about you know making claims that aren't very credible um something that i don't think a lot of people know is there's legislation coming in both in america and in europe that is actually going to make it criminal to mislead people about um, in claims around environment and sustainability and things like that. Um, and I think that when they start coming in and when people, when people realize that mm. you can't just claim you're environmentally friendly, whether or not you are, you actually have yeah. to be environmentally friendly. Improved. I think that's going to massively change the conversation. And it's going to mean the companies that can you know, present themselves as, as not destroying the planet, particularly, um, are actually going to have a huge benefit. So I think that's going to have a massive impact on how people um, work uh, in terms of marketing and sales, because more and more companies are going to demand their suppliers um, are actually um, uh, environmentally friendly, because if they're taking, um, you know, materials or parts or components yeah. um, that haven't been manufactured in an environmentally friendly way, they ultimately can't, you know, uh, replicate um, positive claims for themselves. So, I think that's going to be really interesting. It's it's a bit geeky, um, but it's going to lead to some interesting stuff. And personally, I hope that people get prosecuted with the new law. Um, yeah. I'm sure the way this happens, it won't necessarily happen very quickly. Yeah. Um, there's been so much of this fake green claims being made um, that it's almost devalued companies that have actually been trying to be sustainable. Mm. Um, yeah. So that that'll be a real positive as well. And you know, another. Um, a thing that's going to drive people to really focus on helping the planet rather than just pretending. Absolutely. Awesome. Mate, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Uh, for people who are listening to this and like to know a little bit more about Mike and also Napier, um, where's the best place for them to do that? Um, I've obviously mentioned LinkedIn. Um, great place to go. Um, Mike Maynard. I'm the only Mike Maynard at Napier. Uh, the website is napierb2b.com. Uh, so uh, N-A-P-I-E-R b the number two letter b.com um and uh you know i'm sure your guys are salespeople, right they're super smart um they know if i'm the ceo of the business my email address is mike at napierb2b.com i actually like people emailing me um so you know your listeners will have worked out the email address what i say is if you email me i will actually reply so um give it a go well i can attest to that because you've done it many times <laughs> including the last 24 hours <laughs> So uh, if you'd like to get in contact with Mike, send him an email, but just make sure it's a it's a, a worthwhile email. <laughs> You're going to add some value. So um, I'll put those in the show notes. Uh, Mike, greatly appreciate you jumping on again. And uh, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the Exceptional Sales Letter Podcast. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast, Darren. I've really enjoyed it. Awesome. Thanks, mate. Thank you for listening to the Exceptional Sales Letter Podcast. I trust the information in this episode has been helpful in your journey towards becoming exceptional. And remember, please take the time to rate the show, subscribe to the show so other people can find it. But also, if I can help you, jump on my calendar. Go to leadwithdarren.com 
and let's have a conversation about how I can help you along your journey to being exceptional.